Okay, thank you very much indeed. Yes, I've been coming for 26 years. When I first came here 26 years ago, my wife said, what was it like? I said I felt very underdressed. And 26 years later, I feel very overdressed. I haven't changed. And secondly, I no longer pastor the church in Preston. I left there three weeks ago. So I've been there for 11 and a half years, been pastoring for 40 years. So I'm at the crossroads and finding new things to do with my life. So nothing like throwing yourself on God's mercy to see what tomorrow holds. Uh, but there we are. So anyway, that, that's fine though. Thanks very much indeed. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. I gather you're going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, you looked at the first 14 verses last week where we come to verses 15 to 23. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. But the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The distance from Belfast to Galway, give or take a couple of miles, is the same distance from Jerusalem to Damascus. And that is the distance the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian, was prepared to walk to arrest Christians. If there's one thing that irritated Saul of Tarsus, it was this talk of Jews believing that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. It irritated him. So much so, he got letters from those higher than himself in the world of Judaism to go and arrest these Jewish believers in Damascus. And so he set off this walk of over 200 miles trekking with a few friends and colleagues to go and stamp his authority in Damascus. On the way there, he himself was arrested. He arrested nobody, but God knocked him to the ground. He filled his mouth full of Gentile soil, which for an Orthodox Jew was pretty distasteful. And suddenly, Saul of Tarsus realized he'd run into the living God, and his life was completely turned upside down. Everybody knows about the conversion of the Apostle Paul. He was then directed to a house in Damascus that was owned by a man called Judas. And Ananias was quietly just waiting on the Lord when God spoke to him and said, Ananias, I want you to go to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas, and in there there's a man I want you to speak to, Saul of Tarsus. Lord, not him. Not him. Yes, 
his mind. How will I recognize him? Acts chapter 9 says this, when you go into the room, behold, he prays. He prays. Have you ever seen that before in Acts chapter 9? Behold, he prays. And sure enough, Ananias obeyed the Lord and went into the room. There was a man praying, ah, this is the man that God wants me to speak to. And he reached out and said, Brother Saul. That took grace. Brother Saul. Behold, he prays. What is interesting is this. When you read your way through the Acts of the Apostles, not one of Paul's prayers is recorded. And yet he was a man of prayer. And when you read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, you find that they're peppered with his prayers. And I would say that having studied Paul's prayers for, for many, many years, very rarely does Paul pray for anything physical. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for physical things, but by and large, Paul's prayers are for spiritual things. And here, in verses 15 to 23, we have one of his prayers. It was Leonard Ravenhill who said this, a man is no greater before God than he is on his knees before God. What I am as a person, as a preacher, as a Bible teacher, is nothing in comparison to what I am on my knees before God. And then you suddenly realize, Lord, I'm very small. I'm very small. And here is Paul praying. What a man of prayer he was. And imagine having someone like the Apostle Paul saying, I pray for you. Isn't that a tonic to the soul? A man who met Jesus Christ face to face, a man who was taken up into heaven and said, to be honest, having seen where I'm going, I'm ready to go. And to live is fine, to die is fine, I'm ready for both. A man like that saying, I pray for you. And here Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and he lets them know what he's praying. Verses 1 to 14 in the original text is one sentence. If you've got nothing to do this afternoon, take a deep breath and read verses 1 to 4 on one breath. It's just one sentence. My English teacher would have had a fit. Far too long. And having sort of got to the end of verse 14, he then starts with another long sentence, verse 15, right through to verse 23. So two sentences cover chapter 1. And you've asked me to look at this second sentence, which is Paul's prayer. When Dr. Lloyd-Jones was preaching his way through Ephesians, he spent 10 Sunday mornings on this prayer. He was generally 50 minutes in the pulpit. That's about eight and a half hours. The elder said, could you be slightly less than that? So I'm going to try my best to, to squeeze this amazing prayer into just a few minutes. By the way, how would you like you to have your prayer life dissected in public? One of your prayers put on the screen, and then we're going to look at it and analyze it to say, this is what you pray. I think most of us would recoil and run thinking, dear me, I wouldn't like that to be put on a screen. But here's Paul not being super spiritual, just being natural. He says, this is what I'm praying for you. And basically, as I look at these verses, there are four big things that mark out his prayer, and I trust it will warm our hearts, encourage us and also challenges. 
in verses 15 and 16, the first thing that grabs hold of me about his prayer is this, his thanksgiving for their continuation. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. It had been four years since Paul had been in Ephesus. A lot can happen in four years. We know that. A lot can happen in 12 months. A lot had happened in the church in Ephesus. A lot had happened in the life of the apostle Paul. They're separated by miles. But somebody from Ephesus told him what was going on. And Paul said, when I heard it, I gave thanks to God. What did he give thanks for? Number one, that at least you've come to the Lord in the first place. There's nothing like new birth to make you feel happy. Have you noticed how stupid we all become when a new baby arrives? We start speaking stupid language like, doo -doo 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 -doo. what's wrong with you? I've got a new grandchild. I'm so happy. And when new life comes into a family, we don't care what people think about us. We're happy. There's new life. And when new life comes into the family of God, we rejoice. Hallelujah. Paul says, I'm glad people have come to know the Lord Jesus. And secondly, I'm also glad that you're still continuing. You know, it's great to know when I've been asking about Ephesus that I'm hearing that some of you are still going on for Jesus. And what's more, you love one another. And I just say, Father, thank you for what is going on in Ephesus. When you flip the coin over, when these things don't happen, it's pretty discouraging. Like when you don't see people coming to faith in Christ, it discourages you. And then you say to yourself, when did I last see someone really come to faith in Christ? I don't mean somebody who was in a Christian family and, and after a few years became a Christian. It was kind of part and parcel of family life. Not that grace flows in families. Not that we belittle that kind of conversion. But I mean, somebody who was outside of anything Christian was suddenly arrested by the Holy Spirit, converted, and their life was turned upside down. How many people do you know in that category? I have to tell you quite honestly, I'm struggling. And when you do speak to people, it's as if like you've got two heads. You tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ or you, you kind of hand them a tract and they look at it and go, okay. And you suddenly realize maybe there's a general malaise on the Christian church because we don't see too many conversions. A man whose ministry I used to sit under said, I was brought up in a church where if no one was saved for four weeks, we'd call the church together to say, Lord, is the secret sin that causes you to quench you pouring out the Spirit? These days, lack of conversion is normal. So much so that when a conversion really takes place, we become suspicious. Really? Got to save somebody? And not only that, people continuing. Paul rejoices, they're continuing. It fills him with thanksgiving. And there's nothing saddens the heart more than not just people not coming to faith in Christ, but those who did believe 
growing cold in the gospel. Like Paul said to the Galatians, you ran well, but what's hindered you? I'm not talking about walking away from a church or walking away from a difficult situation. I'm talking about people who walk away from the Lord Jesus. It grieves. Jesus said to Simon Peter, are you going to go as well? Because people did it to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here in the flesh. Are you going? Peter said, where can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And then he rejoices that they're, they're loving one another. And it's great, is it, when you see the church working as it should work to encourage one another and, and to build one another up. We live in such a discouraging world. It almost seems that the goal of our society is to pull people down, to destroy people. And surely the Christian church should be totally different. It should be a place where we say, Lord, we're not here to destroy people. We're here to build one another up. We're here to encourage people. They've had a tough week. The last thing they want to do is to come to church and start fighting. Lord, give them the strength to go on for another week for Jesus. George Vera, in his last book, before the Lord took him home to glory earlier this year, he described it as messiology. He said, we need to get used to messiology. Churches are messy places. And having been a pastor for nearly 40 years, I know churches are messy places. But they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. There should be places where people come to know the Lord Jesus, are encouraged to carry on living for the Lord Jesus. And I said, now go out into the world, and I'm for you. Paul said here in his prayer, God, I thank you for what is going on in Ephesus. I trust if the Apostle Paul was worshiping here at the Crescent, he could say that very same thing. Father, I'm glad I'm hearing of souls coming to Christ, of people still going on, and of people loving one another, building one another up. The second thing that marks his prayer is not only his thanksgiving for their their continuation, but in verse 17, his intercession for their revelation. He said, I thank God for you, but let me tell you what I am praying for you. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. If you want it in a sentence, Paul says this, I'm praying that you may really get to know the Lord. Isn't that what Paul prayed in his uh, Philippian letter? He said, oh, that I may know him. Wait a minute, Paul. You've met the resurrected Lord. You've been to glory and back. Yes, but that I may know him. And, and, and the power of his resurrection, and also the fellowship of his suffering. I want to know the Lord better. And my prayer is this, that you may get to know him better. And then I say to myself, David, do you really know the Lord? And I say to you, 
do you really know the Lord? I've come to realize it's so easy to deal in secondhand stuff. You have the words, you know the songs, you know a few Bible verses to throw around, you try and look modern, you try to look interested, but the question is this, really, do you know Him? Paul says, I'm praying. Yes, you're saved people, I'm not doubting that, but I'm praying that, that God may show something to you of Himself. Tozer used to say that back in the 1950s, I think he said it, before he went home to glory, he said, it's hard to find a church in America where God is the only attraction. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? A church where God is the only attraction. I mentioned I've been a pastor for nearly 40 years, been in church all my life, really, taken before I was a Christian, then got converted. I have to say to myself, as I look back over probably six decades in the Christian church, I've seen an awful lot of religion. I've seen an awful lot of evangelical religion. But this idea of knowing the Lord, I don't mean in a kind of, we have a hotline, but that sense of, this person knows the Lord, and when they come to worship with us, they bring a sense of His presence into the meeting. You've heard me say over the years, my wife is Welsh, and every now and then we go back to Wales to various things, and they're always in the medium of Welsh. I don't understand much, but I try to look intelligent. And. Uh, the other weekend, there was a concert in North Wales for a man, a well-known Welshman who's 80 years of age. And he put on three nights of concerts to say thank you to the Welsh people. And so I went along and it was beautiful, beautiful singing and beautiful playing of a variety of instruments. And I was sat next to a couple who were fluent Welsh speakers. And uh, at the interval, I said, look, I don't speak Welsh, but wasn't that wonderful? They said, oh, it was brilliant. And do you know something? We know him. We're on first name terms. I'm so glad I said it was brilliant. <laughs> we're on first name terms, they said. That's why we're here. Oh, I'm not asking for flippancy, but I'm asking this. Do you know him? Really? And how well do you know Him? Has God given you this spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him? You see, I, I've come to realize the Lord Jesus came into this world to give us life. Life. And what is that life? This is eternal life. To know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's life. Like, you know, we, we kind of argue over a thousand and one things, and we can probably win the argument. The more of Scripture we know, we can probably beat people over the head with our knowledge, but it's not about that. It's about knowing Him. 
Paul says, I, I'm praying, I'm praying that your understanding of God may not just be academic. Thank God for theology. Thank God we can worship God with our minds. But over and beyond that, it has to be more than that. It has to be knowing Him. And not only knowing Him, but enjoying Him. Let me make a public confession. The first Sunday after I left my last pastorate, I didn't know what to do. What do you do when you preach every Sunday and every day almost of your life? What do you do? I went for a long walk. Went for a 16-mile walk. I left home and said to my wife, when I ring you, would you pick me up? She did. She must love me. As I went walking on the hills quite close to where I live, it was filled with people running, cycling, you name it, they were doing it. Came down to a river, there were 20 people doing this wild swimming. I said to myself as I was walking home, why would all these hundreds of people I've met on a Sunday morning, why would they ever even consider coming to church unless I can offer them something better than this? Come to our church and get involved in the politics of church life. Come to our church. Which side of the argument do you stand on? My dear friends, it must be life. That must be our driving force. It must be the life of God within us that is the most attractive thing about church. And then I look around and think, well, if I was in their shoes and I knew nothing of Jesus Christ and knew nothing of the gospel, why would I in my right mind think of going to church on a Sunday morning? When I'm quite happy with my friends and my social life and all that I do, why on earth would I go to church? And friends, our only genius, our only genius is knowing Him and His presence in our midst. And unless we have that, we have nothing. And Paul says, I am praying, this is my intercession, that, that your eyes, God, begin to work on them and that you may know the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I hope that's not too shocking for you. I've been to church since, by the way. And having never missed for 40 years, I think one Sunday was okay. But the third thing he mentions in his prayer, in verse 18, is this, his understanding of their situation. He says, I'm also praying that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Paul says, I'm praying that you may get to know Him, to really get to know the Lord better, to have an intimate relationship with Him, and to live in the life of God. But also I'm praying that God may open your eyes to two things. Number one, assurance, and number two, your assets. 
What is the assurance? The hope of your calling. Last week, as you looked at chapter 1 and verses 3 to 14 specifically, Paul says, do you realize that in Christ we have been elected? We've been called to holiness. We've been adopted. We've been accepted in the beloved. We've been redeemed through the blood. We have been forgiven by His grace. Do you realize that, says Paul? That is our assurance. And my dear friends, in myself, I have no confidence whatsoever. Believe me, I know the state of my heart. But in Jesus Christ, I know in Him, I have been elected, I've been called to holiness, I've been adopted, I've been redeemed, I've been forgiven. And you know, sometimes when things turn out pretty grotty, and you feel pretty lousy in yourself, and you think, nobody loves me, everybody hates me. Wait a minute, David. In him, this is who you are. And so as I go for my daily walk, I have to remind myself every day, David, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. And he died for you. Open your eyes to your position in Christ. Friends, do you do that? Do you realize who you are? If you're a Christian, all this stuff that Paul was writing in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, is applicable to you. And I can't fully understand, can you, how the eternal God wanted me, me, in His kingdom. But He's chosen me in Christ Explain that, I can't. And how his son died to forgive me. Explain that, I can't. But Paul says, Lord, I'm praying that their eyes may be opened to this assurance of the hope of the calling that is theirs in Christ. And my simple message to you this morning is this. Listen, I'm as lousy as you. I know my heart. I know that outside of Christ, there's not much to talk about. But in Christ, ah, it's a different story. And I'm assured I'm in Him. That's why Paul, 164 times in his letters, speaks about us being in Christ. In Christ. But not only our assurance that he prays for, he here talks about assets. He says, I'm also praying too that your eyes may be open to what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. How rich are you? My father once said to me, son, you're only as rich as you spend. And he's right. You're only as rich as you spend. If you have a million pound in the bank, but never spend it, you might as well not have it. Give it me. I'll spend it for you. You are only as rich as you spend. Is that right? And Paul here talks about the riches of his glory, of his inheritance 
in the saints. Friends, how rich are we in Christ? It's unbelievable. We are eternally rich. And it's a matter of saying, Lord, help me to live in the riches that are mine in Christ. Let me tell you a true story that you may find so unbelievable, but it's absolutely true. During COVID, I had to deal with a number of situations. Some were terribly tragic and, and incredibly sad that I don't want to speak about. But one of the situations I had to deal with was of a man who was deeply upset. He said he was a believer. We had conversations on the telephone because we couldn't see each other. But he was deeply concerned that because of COVID, his assets had taken a big hit. Well, I said, to be honest, all our assets have taken a big hit. Uh, and people who were looking for a nice pension pot to mature during the days of COVID took a massive hit. We said, I've taken a big hit, David. He said, my goal was to be a millionaire before I died. What's your life's goal? He said, I wanted to be a millionaire before I died. He said, but now that COVID's come, I can see it's diminishing every day. It's not going to happen. Well, we talked on the phone several times. And then obviously COVID began to disappear slowly and his assets came back. So I rang him. I said, how are your assets going? He said, you know, I think I've just about recouped all I've lost. And then he dropped dead. Never did become a millionaire. What did he leave behind? Everything. Everything. What a goal. I want to be a millionaire before I die. And you call yourself a child of God. My dear friends, in Christ, do you want to see the assets that are ours? You read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. These are my assets. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Called out to live a holy life before the world. Adopted into the family of God. Accepted in the beloved. Redeemed. Forgiven. Friends, what more do we want? And what's more, it's free. We don't have to worry about the stock market. It's already guaranteed. And furthermore... If we can't understand what is written here, who can really understand what is to come? The glories, the glories to come. People are living in this world fearful of what tomorrow brings. Is it going to be a tomorrow? Gluing themselves to the road, doing terrible things, slashing paintings, frightened. My dear friends, when you're a child of God, you can relax. He's in control. It's His world. It's his world. Of course, we're responsible for our planet. Of course we are. But we don't get stressed. Why? This is my father's world. I was telling Ronnie, we have uh, heritage days around where we live. And uh, I try to educate myself on these heritage days. So we have an observatory in our area. Always driven past it. Thought, I'd like to learn a bit more about the stars. So I went in and the, the chief astronomer was there. 
he probably thought, here's a convert. Get him to come and join our society. So we got chatting, and he, he gave me a list of facts and figures about the stars and the planets that he'd written. He said, look at these. He said, look at how many stars there are. There are billions of them. I said to him, do you know the Bible says that God knows every star by name? Wow, he's got a whacking vocabulary. He says, oh, as an atheist, I don't believe that. I said, as a Baptist minister and as a Christian, that warms my heart. He said, it's nice to see you, meaning get out. Why has God made the universe so big? Why has God made so many billions of stars that we can never see? Why has God done all this? Because God is God. And think of the riches that are ours when we enter into eternity. Wow. And Paul says, I am praying that your understanding would get greater about who you are now, your assurance in Christ, and your assets, the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. And then finally, in verses 19 to 23, his appreciation of their foundation. He says, I'm praying that you'll be aware of the exceeding greatness of his power towards those who believe. That's not an easy sentence to understand. It's all part of the bigger sentence. But he says, I'm praying that you'll have a greater understanding of the exceeding greatness of his power towards yourselves. Now, he's not saying here, I want you to have a power encounter. He says, woof, right. Paul's saying the church in Ephesus needs a power encounter. No, he's telling us of the power that has already been exerted to get us into the kingdom of God. And he connects that in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. How is a person converted? Through the work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody converts themselves. Why? If you don't believe me, well, listen to the preacher next Sunday, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Paul says, you were dead. Before you became a Christian, you were dead. But you know something? Dead people don't speak. I have never had anyone bang a coffin lid to say, do you mind getting me out of here? I, 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 don't, I don't like this death business. I fancy life. Dead people don't resurrect themselves. And Paul said, before we became Christians, we were dead in trespasses and sins. What happened? We were resurrected. How? By the Holy Spirit who worked in us. The very Holy Spirit who was at work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the very power that took Jesus to Calvary and then took him out of the grave and took him up to glory and is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. That very power, says Paul, is the very power that has raised you from death to new life in Christ. Where am I seated? Because I'm in Christ. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. So in reality as a Christian, 
I should be living my life not down here looking up, but up there looking down because I'm with Christ in heavenly places. I get a heavenly view of life. And Paul said the very, the very thing that happened to Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit is the very thing that has happened to you. And so it's so easy, is it not, in your Christian life to go around moaning and groaning and feeling so hard done by and, oh, this is tough. We all do it. I do it. Come on, David. Stop. You're in Christ. And the very Holy Spirit who was at work in the Son is the very Holy Spirit who has resurrected to you into new life in Christ. Where am I living? Well, I live in Lancashire. Yes, but spiritually, I'm with Christ in heavenly places. That gives a whole new perspective on life. So when I look down and go, yes, that is grotty, but I'm in Christ. That is awful, yes, but I'm in Christ. Lord, help me to be aware of my position that I'm seated with him in heavenly places. And so the point that Paul is making is this. Not that we all need a massive power encounter in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, no, be aware of what has already happened to you. And I find it absolutely amazing that I've been resurrected by the Holy Spirit. I find it amazing. I kind of pinch myself. Lord, I've been a Christian nearly 50 years, and I can't believe, I can believe, but I can hardly believe that you have resurrected me and held me. And for nearly 50 years, I've been living in Christ. What a privileged person I am. And what a privileged person you are. You kind of, you know, you meet non-Christians that look at you, they go, ah, poor dab, poor dab. They still believe in God. They believe all this Jesus stuff. No, no, don't pity me. I count myself honored that the God of the universe has resurrected me. John MacArthur has a great illustration that I once heard him give and I'll sort of mention it in closing. I think it's very, very powerful. He said a friend of his was preaching in Carolina for a period of time and he was in North Carolina and South Carolina. And so he went to start with some friends in Asheville who said, yeah, come and start with us and use our house as a base and you preach here and there. One evening he was preaching in Greenville, which was quite a place away from Asheville where he was stopping. And he, he knew he'd be late home, but anyway, he had no car, so the church sent a car to pick him up, drove him all the way to Greenville to preach and then dropped him off. It was midnight when he got home. The porch light was on, but that was all. So he kind of gently tapped the door. There's no answer. Starts hammering the door. There's no answer. He walked around the little town where they were living to see if there was a light on to say, can I use your telephone to give them a ring to wake them up? Everyone was in bed. So he started walking down the road, and as he's walking down the road, he fell in a ditch, two feet of water, soaked. Eventually, he found a motel with a light on. So he went in, this preacher, with his suit on, covered in mud, covered in water, and he said to the motel manager, 
can I just ring my friends to say I'm trying to get in the house? They've forgotten to stay up for me. So he rang. Eventually they came to the, to the phone and he said, you've forgotten to stay up to open the door. Said the man in the house, don't remember we gave you a key? Oh yes, you did. It's in my pocket. It's a parable. When we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because God sends His Holy Spirit into us to resurrect us, to bring us out the grave, to take us to heavenly places, to have us seated with Christ. Wow! If the people who came to the crescent lived in the truth of that, this would be a different place altogether. And I know this, if I lived there all the time, wow, I would live a different kind of life. Thank you for asking me to expound this passage. It's challenged me to the core of my being. What kind of life are you living, David? Are you aware of your assets? Are you aware of your position? And by the way, do you have this very life that Paul is praying about? I can't stand religion. Religion's terrible. Religion kills people. It doesn't interest me one bit. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life. And my prayer these days is this, Lord, I'm tired of playing religious games. It's got nothing to do with whether you wear a tie or not. I could stand here with a t-shirt and ripped jeans and look cool but stupid for my age. It's not about that. That's just playing around with the semantics. My prayer is this, Lord, do a work in my heart to open my eyes to who I am in Christ, that whatever time I have left, I live for the glory of Jesus, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. What about you? What about you? Next time you hear Galway mentioned, just think of the Apostle Paul, not walking to Galway, but walking that very distance to arrest Christians. And out of that came a life of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we're conscious that Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ isn't like accepting a package from Amazon. We've got the box now. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is having a living relationship with you. Father, we ask and pray as we live in a society that has no time for the things of God. Why should they be attracted to our buildings and our programs? because we're not attracted to their buildings and programs, but we have something that is different. We have the Holy Spirit who makes the things of God real. Heavenly Father, make the things of God real in our lives.
that we may be alive in the things of God, that we may live in our spiritual assets and be reminded on a regular basis of who we are in Christ. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. What a man of God he was. Thank you for his prayers. And Lord, birth in us quality prayers as we pray for other people and as we pray for ourselves. Father, sometimes you must be tired of our words because words are cheap. Birth spirit-anointed prayers in our heart. And may we pray until we see them answered because we ask it in the name of our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.